Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares, and by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. If somebody is primed to believe something, if he or she already wants to believe a thing, then it's fairly simple to persuade him or her into believing that thing. Isn't that brilliant? It's so true. This is a paraphrased quote that I stole this morning from Scott Adams, the cartoonist. Let me say it again. If you already want to believe a thing, then it is not difficult at all to persuade you into believing that thing. Oh boy, there there's so many things that can be applied to. The first thing that popped into my head when when I heard that was how when a person is living with borderline personality disorder or any emotional disorder, they walk around viewing every negative experience in their life as confirmation that they are worthless. You see, subconsciously or unconsciously, they already believe they are inherently without worth. So they're walking around just reading confirmation into everything as if it proves what they already believe. So you see, they're already primed to believe that they are without worth. So every negative experience that happens to them persuades them into believing that that is now confirmed. How about this? If you don't want to do the work to authentically recover from borderline personality disorder, so if you view it as something, let's say, overwhelming or intimidating, or if your only real motivation is to go through the motions of recovery in order to convince the people in your life that you're trying, but really all you want to do is just stop the disruptions to your preferred way of living, how hard would it be to persuade you that authentic recovery is impossible? Not very hard, would it? No, it wouldn't be hard at all to persuade you that, uh, for example, it's all genetic, uh, that Brian Barnett and the last symptom is a fraud, that you might as well just learn a few simple coping tricks and not put much effort into it, you see? Because what is it that you already want to believe? What, what is it you're already primed to believe? You're primed to believe that uh, 
recovery, authentic recovery is impossible or it, it's, it's too much work, right? So what are you looking for? You're looking to be persuaded out of even trying, aren't you? You're walking around looking for anything to persuade you out of these things. So it wouldn't take very much. Somebody recently said that somebody, I think it was her husband, had come up with the excuse that I had cheated on my wife 10 years ago as a reason to discredit all my work. Of course, this ain't anything I've ever hidden. Uh, in fact, I share that detail in my life openly, and I use it as a major aspect of my work to explain how the root causes of borderline personality disorder affect us in various ways and why they affect us in those various ways. But do you see what I'm getting at? It, it seems to me like this is a guy here who already wants to believe that the last symptom can't help him. Either that or he, he just doesn't want to do the work. Uh, and so what does he do? You know, he simply finds something to persuade him that what he wants to believe is true. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. You know, even after years of going through my own authentic recovery, and even after years of now helping other people establish their own firm foundations for authentic recovery, I still find human psychology absolutely fascinating. In my opinion, human psychology trumps every single other discipline on earth for seeing through bullshit. Take science, for example. Everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but a, a great number of people love holding up science and scientists as gods, right? Really, it's the scientists they're holding up as gods because they don't even understand the science. They don't even bother to research, research or try to understand the science uh, below the surface, but they trust that the scientists know what they're talking about. So truly, they put their full belief and hope in scientists. You know, that makes scientists their gods. Well, that's fine. You know, they can do whatever they want to do. But if you don't take into consideration the reality that scientists are all people, right? When you become a scientist, you don't become something more than human. You're still just a person. And what does that mean? If you're a person, what does that mean? It means inherently you are prone to the same psychological heuristics and logical fallacies as everybody else. So if you don't take that very relevant bit of information into consideration, you don't, you don't include that context, you're really missing out on a major factor involved in the overall nature of the thing. So, yes, data may say just what data says, but it still has to be interpreted by people. And think about the social, psychological, and political psychological factors in play. Are scientists, as people, regular victims to these things as well? Of course they are, because... Remember, they're still people. The greatest 
uh, most recent example of the social and political aspect of things influencing the conclusions that scientists come to is how scientists assure us that 10,000 people crowded together protesting social injustice clearly does not spread coronavirus. No, of course it doesn't. But a large picnic at the beach with your family does. <laughs> See, that, that's not science. That's psychology. Particularly social psychological factors influencing the conclusions they come to. Ladies and gentlemen, happy Thursday. You thought I'd forgotten to say it, didn't you? Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. To bring all you newbies up to date, I personally had borderline personality disorder for at least the first 35 years of my life, completely unaware that I had it, and now I really don't have it. After a major crisis in my life where I did some really harebrained things that were sort of contrary to my sense of right and wrong at the time, like cheating on my wife, I lost everything I cared about in my life. The disorder completely devastated my life. I was at the, well, they call it rock bottom. I'd say I, I was even below rock bottom. I then slowly worked to identify the root causes of that whole experience and permanently rid myself of those underlying causes and uh, something that I was successful in doing over the course of about, of about seven years, uh, more or less. This podcast is part of a broader effort of mine to now help other people avoid the lies and misdirection that permeate the topic of emotional disorders and to help them establish solidly accurate foundations for themselves upon which to begin building their own authentic recoveries. In other words, to be permanently and completely rid of emotional disorders themselves and to finally be able to experience true emotional health and underlying contentment just as I now do. Before we move on with today's conversation, I am eh, somewhat obligated to tell you about thelastsymptom.com, my website full of free resources. And I'm very happy for all who take advantage of those free resources. The reason why I say I'm partially obligated to tell you about thelastsymptom.com is because support for my work also comes through there. So in addition to the free resources, I also offer some paid resources, such as one-on-one -on -one time with me in the form of phone conversations and Zoom meetings. And coming soon, my intensive two-week course titled The Last Symptom Fundamentals Course will be available in a pre-recorded format for all. If you'd like to support my overall body of work, which includes this weekly podcast that you're listening to now, I invite you to leave either a one-time donation or a recurrent donation over at thelastsymptom.com. And let me thank you in advance for that. For those of you who donated here in the past couple weeks, you know who you are. And please... Accept my very, very sincere gratitude. Today's episode is thanks to you. So all of you out there in radio listener land, how about some applause 
for those who had the means and the willingness to financially support last symptom efforts here in the last couple of weeks. If you're driving, you don't have to clap. You can, uh, you can just hoot and holler or something like that. That's, that'll do the trick too. A couple of days ago, I got a notice that I never in a million years expected to get. It was from Google, and it said that my personal email, now get this, my personal email was completely full. (laughs) It was totally out of space. Now, do you all remember when Google come out with Gmail, what was the selling point for Gmail? That you'd never have to delete another email again, right? <laughs> well, let me tell you, you're, you're being lied to because I run out of space. Couldn't believe it. And the notice I got said that I could either buy more space or I could free up space. So I went to task, clearing up over 10 years worth of emails. Guess how many emails I ended up deleting between yesterday and today? 173,000 emails. It was taking so long that a big portion of it, I think I deleted like 60 thousand emails without even looking at what they are. So I hope that doesn't come back to haunt me, but I deleted 173,000 emails. This is not an easy job because you know that scattered in there among all that junk mail are emails that you you genuinely want to save. So it's a little tedious. Well, let me tell you, while I was not happy at all about being obligated into that work that took me two days. You know, I had other things I I was wanting to get to, but uh, it just can't go without the ability to receive new emails. So it was something I had to take care of. But although I got thrust into this project unwillingly and at an inconvenient time, let me tell you, it really turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Your email and everything that's in it is amazing. You know, it's a real life time machine. So I got back to around 2010, 2011, 2012, and started coming across all of these old emails from before my borderline personality disorder crisis and during my borderline personality disorder. A disorder crisis and immediately after my borderline uh, personality disorder crisis and even in the years following. And that to me was just fascinating. My goodness, how absolutely ignorant I was. What a poor, pathetic individual I was. No, I shouldn't say that. What a poor, pathetic foundation of perspectives I was living with back then. And how poor and pathetic my behaviors and my manipulations and my thinking were back then. That's the correct way to say that. Someday soon, I may share a few of those old emails with you. I I may just read 
some of my old emails unedited just to show you how far, I mean, just what a difference 10 years makes and what a difference authentic recovery makes. Also, there was a woman (laughs) that I was sleeping with back then. And uh, I might share some of the emails from her, you know, of course, without giving away anything that might indicate who she who she is. But she was an absolute wacko. (laughs) And I shouldn't say that either. She wasn't a wacko, but she was certainly emotionally unhealthy. And uh, it's pretty apparent just by all these old emails, just how emotionally unhealthy she was. Now, I haven't talked to her for a long time, so maybe she's. Uh, done some work on herself, and 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 the past is the past. But at that time, she certainly was extremely emotionally unhealthy. And here I was. I was extremely emotionally unhealthy too, but uh, I was at the beginning of my journey toward authentic recovery. So I was learning things. I was uh, conscientious, I reckon I could say, of, of the things I, were, I was doing. I was trying to understand why I was doing them. I was trying to understand all these deeper things. Uh, I don't think she was ever doing that type of work, but my goodness, she was unhinged. Let's just put it that way. If the emails reflect that, just imagine what it was like dealing with her in person at times. Um, She and I did not have a committed relationship, but we had an intense sexual relationship going on. Because of that, I was willing to overlook an awful lot of wackiness and instability for for that. (laughs) Uh, It's funny, but it's not funny. Uh, So I may share some of of that story in the future and some of those back and forth emails. I may have to edit a few of those because, my goodness, they were, uh, well, let's just say they weren't made for Saturday morning cartoons. But anyway, I just wanted to share that with you, that I went through a ton of old emails from 10 years ago, and it was sort of a treasure trove. I was up until 2 a.m. just looking them over and remembering as if it were just yesterday all these things. It really did transport me back 10 years ago. I don't even know how to describe it. I, I could smell the smells. I could. It was like I was there. All these things, and it, it was kind of nice. You know, it was like I got to spend time with my ex-wife. But this time, this time I got to listen to what she had to say. From a healthy, insightful perspective, she was talking to me still, but now I'm hearing them again. From a healthy, insightful perspective and with the experience of authentic recovery behind me. I also could see very clearly how resolute Diana was from just much earlier on the timeline that I remembered. And, you know, there were some memories, uh, the way certain things went down in detail, that the details had kind of faded a bit uh, as far as when they happened, uh, when she said a certain thing to me, when when a certain thing occurred. So that was nice. Uh, It was kind of a refreshed the specifics in my memory. Also, I got to see a lot of my long-winded responses to her and to, for example, the the emotionally unhealthy woman. Uh, my back and forth with uh, Janelle, you know, my mistress, the one who uh, became pregnant with the baby, with my baby, and ended up uh, miscarrying, which was 
uh, tragic and sad. Got to see exactly again when that happened and the conversations that we had around that. How patient and loving Janelle was toward me, even though uh, I certainly was not behaving in ways that deserved that. Not at all. Diana, my wife, of course, uh, who made more sacrifices than she did? Nobody. Who was more patient and did more for me in a healthy way than Diana did? Nobody. So it was nice. It, it was, I got to spend time with these people through, you know, in the format of these emails and get transported back then and see all these things from an entirely different angle. Now, you'd think that I would have looked over these emails over the years, but here's what happened. If you use uh, Gmail, and particularly if you use an Apple device with Gmail, mostly if you're using it on a phone or an iPad, and you go to delete those things, they don't delete, they archive. So all of these emails that I had gotten rid of had gone into an archive file that I was blissfully ignorant about all this time. So when I went to clean up my emails, I got into that that archive file, and lo and behold, there were all of these emails that I thought were long, long gone. So uh, that was kind of a, a blessing in disguise, too. So I was able to retrieve all those emails and save them, which I've done, um, and they're important to me. I want to keep them. But as far as 173,000 other emails, which mostly just trash, uh, I finally got rid of those. And now I've got a clean inbox, which is a beautiful thing. But I'm telling you, it took me two days, two days of, of work, which uh, set me back for other last symptom-related things I've I really been wanting to get to. Here are the three topics we're going to discuss today. Number one, why am I so critical of my body? Number two, I served on jury duty and felt ashamed about my unsubstantiated thoughts of the defendant. And number three, why do I stress about everybody looking at me in public? Well, let's get into it. What do you say? Number one, why am I so critical of my body? Well, it's valuable to think long and hard about the true nature of shame. What shame truly is until it clicks clearly into place in your mind. When we talk about the two subconscious or unconscious beliefs that form the very foundation of emotional disorder, you know what they are, right? I've repeated them a million times. My feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth. And I, myself, am inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth. I got a message the other day from somebody who said, that's, that's not true. I have never felt worthless. Well, <laughs> if you have an emotional disorder, you do. Now, I'll grant you that maybe you're not aware that you're walking around with that perspective or that underlying belief, but that's why they're called subconscious or unconscious beliefs is because you're not aware that you're walking around with that inside of you. So everybody who has an emotional disorder perceives himself or herself as inherently devoid of worth. So those two underlying 
distorted core beliefs, I often call them. Really, the only what they are, it's just shame. It's shame defined in a very detailed way. So that's the message of shame. But now, let's consider the feeling itself, how, how shame feels. How does shame feel? Can you tap into that? Shame is a combination of humiliation and of repugnance. Now, let that just simmer for a minute. Try to tap into that. A humiliating repugnance. So think of anything that humiliates you and tap into that sensation for a minute. The feeling of being terribly, humiliatingly, unwelcomely exposed to others. Did I tell you a story? I think I did. Way back in maybe the first season of this show. Uh, I was talking to a girl I had a crush on when I was about 13. And <laughs> I had uh, gotten into an egg fight with a bunch of people. I was at this party, got into this egg fight. And now Cindy, uh, the girl I had a crush on, she was there. And she was about uh, three or four years older than me. Well, after this egg fight, I hosed down with water hose to get all that egg off of me. And then the only clothes I had to change into were a pair of swim trunks and a T-shirt. So <laughs> I changed into this uh, these swim trunks. Well, uh, you know, boys' swim trunks have the underwear built into the trunks. So I had taken off my underwear to put these things on. My, it, I had to anyway. My underwear were soaked uh, just from the, the activities of that party. So I got these swim trunks on. And at some point, I went over to talk to Cindy. And I'm standing. They're sitting on a couch, her and two of her girlfriends. And I'm, I'm standing in front of them talking to them. I don't even remember what I was talking about. But uh, my friend Jason come up behind me and whoop, grabbed my swim trunks and pulled them straight down to my ankles. And there I stood, totally exposed totally unexpectedly exposed against my will in front of the woman I had the biggest crush on at the time and her two beautiful friends. Now, <laughs> I was 13, had just come out of this cold you know, water hose water, and let's just say it was not the ideal circumstances as a man to have my picture taken or to be examined uh, below the belt. <laughs> and what I remember about that is just the horror, just the, the shame and the horror washing over me. And I bent over to pull my swim trunks up, and they kept getting stuck on my big gangly knees. <laughs> so I got a hold of them, and I was in my horror and terrified state. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to get them up. <laughs> to cover myself up, and they kept catching on my knees. So um, let's just say I was exposed for a lot longer than I wanted to be. And for years, years, I wanted to make Jason pay for that. Well, he and I are still good friends to this day. I have no ill will for him. Uh, in fact, I think it's funny now, but you got to understand, as a 13-year-old with borderline personality disorder, 
that experience was devastating. I, I could feel the shame through my body like like a fever, like a fever just riding through my body, and it, it bothered me forever and ever that did. So shame is the combination of humiliation and of repugnance. So a humiliating repugnance. I asked you to think of anything that humiliates you and tap into that sensation for a minute. The feeling of being terribly, humiliatingly, unwelcomely exposed to others. And you'll get a sense of, of what that feels like. How about the repugnance? Well, imagine a mouthful of rotted teeth or of the filthiest, most unkept public bathroom you've ever seen. Remember how repulsed you were at the thought of your shoes even touching that floor. Utter repugnance. So, now we've considered humiliation and repugnance. Borderline personality disorder, subconsciously, at the root of that, is the attitude of these two feelings combined and directed inward toward ourselves, as well as toward our very feelings. Think about whenever your feelings, your true feelings that you did not want to share with anybody, was put on display for others, and how you felt, you probably felt like I did, bending over to grab my swim trunks and try to get them up over my knees. Panic, right? Just, God, such repulsion at yourself, at your feelings. This weakness, this humiliating weakness that exists inside of yourself. Now note the subtlety. We're not talking about merely feeling humiliatingly repugnant. It's deeper than that. It's the subconscious certainty that uh, these feelings are appropriate for what our inherent state is, right? Because what is the shame... What is the belief system we live on when we have an emotional disorder? That we are inherently devoid of any natural worth, right? So you take everything away from us, our car, uh, our hair, you take away the, the, the nice clothes we're wearing, you take away our friends, you take away the things we have, you take away our accomplishments, and what are we left with? We're nothing, right? We're nothing. We're just an empty shell. We, we have no inherent worth just on our own. All of our worth has to come from other things, from external things. So people with emotional disorders perceive that as their inherent reality, right? Their inherent state. Now, earlier this week, I discussed the importance of understanding the nuance of the word inherent. It means the very nature of the thing. So that the descriptive term used for that thing is a natural part of what simply makes it what it is. So, for example, fire is hot. Hot is an inherent quality of fire, right? You're never going to find cold fire. So now let's go back to the point. Borderline personality disorder is feeling that one's own identity and one's very feelings are shameful in a way that is inseparable from them. So their very feelings are shameful in a way that is inseparable from what their feelings just are. They themselves as people, shameful 
it is a descriptive term that is inseparable from what they simply are. So you take the nuances of the true nature of both these things together, and you begin to get insight for what this implies. Looking at yourself and hating your body comes as no surprise whatsoever. Inherent. Shame. Understanding these two words below the surface, truly understanding the subtle nature of them and their implications, is extremely useful for drawing all the conclusions people need for forming a bigger, more comprehensive understanding about how this disorder manipulates you. The question is, why, why are you so critical of your body? Well, because you can't be anything else as long as you're walking around with these fundamental certainties at, at the foundation of uh, your emotional self. I was just watching this, uh, this series on uh, Amazon Prime called The Boys about the superheroes kind of in a, a realistic modern day world. And uh, there's a character on there who is like an aquatic superhero. You know, he uh, can speak with fish and that sort of thing. Half of the first season was about him. He has gills on his body. So not on his face, but he has gills like a fish on his torso. And uh, I thought it was fascinating a lot of the show dealt with his insecurities about anybody seeing these gills, even women. So he'd be with women, but he'd be insecure and wouldn't want them to see the gills. And the, the women loved it. They thought it was the coolest thing in the world. They thought it was sexy and everything. But, but he could not enjoy it because of his own perceptions toward himself. So it's nothing unusual if you feel insecure about your body. It's very unlikely that anybody you're with even cares or notices or even thinks about those aspects of your body like you do. Believe me, and I'm saying this with no uncertainty whatsoever, no matter what the case, you're definitely, definitely a worse critic over anything involving your body than anybody else could possibly be. And as you advance in your authentic recovery, those insecurities are going to fade to nothing. They're going to go away. I had certain insecurities, too, about my body. And let me tell you, at times, I've been in almost movie star shape. And I still had things, but I was feeding those insecurities. Not Nobody else was. And thinking back on my experiences, uh, I wish I could go back in a time machine and I could go back and say, you know, that zit on the end of your nose is not going to make her like you less. She knows it's going to go away in a few days and stuff like that. So nowadays, I'm pretty uh, secure. Even the things that I wish were better, let's say. And no, guys, I ain't talking about the one-eyed lizard. I'm talking about, you know, moles and muscles and the lack of a six-pack and stuff like that. Really nothing to get uh, too bent out of shape about. So today I'm pretty secure in those things. All right. On to the next one. I served on jury duty and felt ashamed over my unsubstantiated thoughts of the defendant. 
Here's my reply to that. We're not really talking about thoughts. So let me read the, the question again. I served on jury duty and felt ashamed over my unsubstantiated thoughts of the defendant. Well, see, we're not really talking about thoughts. We're talking about feelings here, not thoughts. You, you know, the person felt a certain way, right? And then felt ashamed about how they felt. So the person is confusing thoughts for feelings and vice versa. They were actually sitting there listening to the defendant, and they had certain feelings toward the defendant, and that is what they're feeling ashamed about. But this goes back to the lie that feelings can be good or bad, right or wrong. And feelings don't fit into that category whatsoever. If you want to know more about that, you need to go back and listen to other episodes of this podcast. Thoughts, yes. We have a certain amount of control over our thoughts, right? We may not be able to control thoughts that pop into our head, but we do have full control over whatever we choose to continue thinking about. And as I illustrated in last week's episode of this show, we have full control over how we choose to think about things. The, is the glass half empty or is the glass half full? You know, we that is a powerful, powerful uh, capability that all of us have. But in the case of serving on jury duty, you're listening to a case, right? A certain personality type comes up to the stand, and you start feeling things immediately, right? You don't know what the feelings mean. You don't know what they're telling you. All you know is that, and this is not just in a courtroom situation. This happens every day. Every, every time you walk up and start talking to a person, feelings start kicking in. And we may not understand why we feel that way toward a person. How many times have you met a person that you just couldn't stand? Like from the moment you start talking to them, you say, oh, gosh, that guy rubs, rubs me the wrong way. I don't know what it is about him, but just his personality or something just really puts a hair in my biscuit. And later you have to sit down and try to figure out why you feel that way, right? What's... What perspectives or thoughts are giving birth to those feelings? But remember what is at the root of emotional disorder. We've talked about it today, right? It's the underlying belief that your feelings are shameful, right? That feelings can be good or bad, that you can feel the right thing and you can feel the wrong thing. And that's a flat-out lie. That's not the way, that's not the category that feelings fit into. Feelings aren't something we do, there's something we experience. As such, there's no such thing as feeling the right thing or the wrong thing. Whatever you feel is simply what you feel. So again, the first distorted core belief is my feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth. And what we're seeing here in this example is that first distorted core belief in action I'm feeling something I shouldn't feel. That's what the person who presented this question, that's what's happening there. I'm feeling something I shouldn't feel. That's not a real thing. It's, it, there's no such thing as feeling something you shouldn't feel. Whatever you feel is just what you feel.
Feelings aren't good or bad, right or wrong. Not ever. They just are what they are. So they're just a form of data input, right? As humans, we have two major toolboxes for engaging with life and evaluating our circumstances, our needs, uh, evaluating we ourselves as people. One of those toolboxes, one of those forms of data input is our feelings. And they are designed to work together hand in hand harmoniously with the other toolbox. What is the other toolbox? The other toolbox is our analytical thought. So our feelings don't exist to make us do or not do things. However, when the purpose of our feelings is misunderstood, it often leads to our feelings making decisions for us. For example, when people with borderline personality disorder act in ways that seem irrational and seem crazy, so in ways that they later regret, what has happened is that their feelings have taken control of the bus, so to speak. I I like to think of it as a bus speeding down the highway. And either we are making the decisions and steering that bus, or we're taking our hands off the steering wheel and we're letting our feelings do it. And so that's what happens with unhealthy people. They misunderstand the role that feelings play in life. And because of this, it's like they're riding along in a speeding school bus uh, with nobody at the wheel. Their feelings feel this, and the bus veers off in this direction. They feel this, and they veer off in the other direction. Nobody's steering. So feelings aren't designed to work this way. Feelings are not designed to steer the bus anywhere. Their information, they're like the road signs. That's what the feelings are. They're like the road signs. And you can take this exit or you could take the next exit or you can continue driving. You know, when you're in control, you're looking at the road signs, using them to inform yourself, but who's making the decisions? Well, healthfully, you yourself are making the decisions. You're not letting your feelings make your decisions for you. So our analytical thought is meant to work harmoniously with our feelings in a way that we analyze what we're feeling so that then we can decide the proper course of action. Not the feelings deciding, but us deciding. And in the past, I've talked about feelings being like um, an advisor, right? Powerful people use advisors all the time. There were advisors back in ancient Egypt. You know, the pharaohs had advisors. But just because an advisor says, Pharaoh, here's my counsel to you. The pharaoh doesn't have to do what the advisor says, but he he does take it into consideration, doesn't he? But ultimately, who makes the decision? Pharaoh, not the advisor. So if you think of your feelings like that, that'll be very useful to you. So in the case of this example of the defendant and jury duty, the person felt something about the defendant, and then the person felt shame because of what he or she felt. (laughs) Imagine that, feeling shame about what they felt. So this person wants to imagine that he or she felt shame over what he or she thought, but that just ain't true. 
he or she felt shame for what he or she felt. And this is often what I'm trying to communicate when I tell people what one of the root causes of borderline personality disorder is. Subconsciously believing that feelings are shameful. But again, your feelings cannot be classified as good or bad, right or wrong. Feeling something is not doing something. You see, it's not even anything you have any control over. There aren't something you do. That's why uh, it's a big lie when the professional community talks about regulating your emotions. There is no such thing. They should know better. There is no such thing as a person walking around regulating, that is, controlling the intensity of the feelings they feel and what they feel. That's not a real thing. Human beings do not possess that capacity. So your feelings cannot be classified as good or bad, right or wrong, no matter what those feelings are at any time. Feeling isn't something you have any control over. They aren't something you do. They're something you experience. They happen to you, right? What you feel is happening to you. It's not something you're doing that you're doing at all. The feelings are merely information about your environment. That's all they are. They're a tool for gauging your environment and your needs. In this case, the person combined their feelings with analytical thought and decided not to take any action in this, in this case. So what's the problem? Even in a, a jury felt like this person was untrustworthy when they started talking. You might have felt that, but maybe that's not the cl- conclusion you're going to ultimately arrive at, right, after you hear the case. But it is informing you that maybe you need to pay close attention to what they do say to try to get to the bottom of why you feel that they're not trustworthy or whatever the situation is. Back to the guy on the street uh, that, that I started to talk about earlier. I may feel a way about him, and maybe the feel, maybe I'm feeling uneasy around him. You see, I don't have to just blurt that out to him. Hey, you're, you're making me feel uneasy. <laughs> I'm not obligated to do that. But this doesn't mean ignoring the feelings of uneasiness either. You see, maybe when I combine these feelings with my analytical thought... I'll decide that in the future to avoid this person. I don't need any other reason. My feelings are reason enough for me to my for me myself to make such a decision. As a healthy person who's interested in understanding why I feel the way I feel, um, I personally I would sit down and try to get to the bottom of why I feel that way. What is it about this person that makes me feel uncomfortable? Maybe it's something legitimate. Maybe it's not. You know, say that you uh, you sit down with your feelings and you realize that those feelings are being born from racist thoughts. Ah, you see, now, because you've used your feelings as information, you've analyzed them to find out why you feel that way, you have discovered where the feelings are coming from, You recognize that the thoughts are not accurate thoughts. And you can work then to address the thoughts, but the feelings themselves cannot be classified as good or bad, and they are immune. The feelings themselves are immune to any type of judgment. What we choose to allow ourselves to continue thinking about, and certainly our actions, are not immune 
to judgment because we do have choices when it comes to what we think, how we think, and certainly the way we choose to behave. All right, the final one. Why do I stress about everybody looking at me in public? This is going to be tightly related to the first one we talked about, about being uh, insecure about one's physical appearance. Do you know that, first of all, if you are really attractive, people probably are noticing you when you come into a room. You know, you hear these people say, oh, come on, nobody's looking at you, or nobody cares, and oh, come on, it's all in your head. Well, it might be, and it might not be. If you're really attractive, people probably are noticing you when you come into a room. I notice beautiful people all the time. It's just the curse of beauty. People will be drawn to look. If I'm driving down the road and I see a beautiful woman jogging by, believe me, I look. But here's the thing. When you walk into a room, and if people really are noticing you and looking at you, here's what's not happening. They ain't looking for your defects. And that's what this is about. All right? Let's say that again. If people really are looking at you when you walk into a bar or restaurant or wherever, the thing they aren't doing is looking at you trying to find your defects. And that's what this is really about. The terrible self-consciousness of believing that the reason people may be looking is because they want to find your defects. And this is the second distorted core belief at work. I, myself am inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth. Because, you see, if you subconsciously or unconsciously believe this about your inherent state, then you are also subconsciously worried that others will notice it too if they look hard enough. And you're convinced that they are actually looking for it. So I understand about having a nice body and and being attractive and the desire for that. It's nice. Uh, I'm currently on a a real health kick myself uh, trying to get into a workout routine. You know why? Because I'd like to look nice. I'd like to be in good shape. I'm not that much out of shape, so hopefully it won't take too long. But I would like to look nicer than I do. And in the past, I've been in almost movie star shape myself at different times. You know, I also acknowledge that I'm not hideous to look at. In fact, uh, there have been times when I was astonished at how many women were attracted to me. And this is not a lack of humility by any means, me me talking about this. My talking about this has a greater purpose, and I hope everybody will overlook it and tolerate it in the interest of the point I'm trying to make. Here's the point. None of that mattered. (laughs) Do you see? It didn't matter how attractive I was while I was living with borderline personality disorder. It didn't matter how ripped I was. It didn't matter how beautiful uh, I was at certain times in my life, as long as I had borderline personality disorder. So the stress you feel from the possibility of people looking at you in public is not rooted in your looks. 
You may mistakenly think that it is, but that is not where the stress is coming from. We know it because even people who are certain that they are attractive, who also have borderline personality disorder, feel the same stress. I used to walk around tight, my, my, my body tight, always having to be standing in a perfect stance, uh, having my body erect in just the right way, constantly worried about what other people were thinking about me when they looked and uh, being terrified of revealing any negative physical aspect about myself. Emotionally healthy people don't do this. I don't do that anymore. And why is that? Well, because they live with the exact opposite foundation beliefs that people who are emotionally unhealthy live with. So if emotionally unhealthy people live with the idea that they, they don't have inherent value, then where does it have to come from? It has to come from external sources. What are they walking around afraid of? Other people are going to realize if they look hard enough, they're going to discover my deep, dark secret that I don't have value. The exact opposite of that underlying erroneous lie is I do have inherent value. Now, what's a person who knows that they have inherent value? How's that person walking around? Are they walking around dependent on external sources of validation in order to feel okay about themselves? No, they're not because they themselves are making themselves feel all right about themselves. You see that they themselves are supplying that validation. I have value. I don't need to do anything to earn it. I just, I just have it. So that person's very secure. What are they not walking around fearing? Well, a person who has inherent value knows that their, their value, their worth, is uh, an inherent part of them. They're not walking around thinking that people are looking at them trying to find some sort of defect. Because you know why? They don't care. They, they embrace their defects. A defect does not take away their inherent value the same way that uh, a defect on an ice cube does not take away its coldness. As long as it's an ice cube, it's cold. Well, as long as you're a person, you have value. So the people who live with this as their emotional foundation are very secure, and they ain't walking around thinking, oh, that person's looking at me, and I'm terrified because they're going to find something that is going to um, reveal that I'm worthless. Why would they even suspect that? They don't. Healthy people don't even walk around with that fear at all. Why would they? You only walk around with that type of a fear if beneath everything you believe you, you, you don't have value. So what is giving birth to the stress of being observed by people in social circumstances? It's this, the fear that they will see beyond your looks and realize that you are without value. So do you understand that a person who perceives him or self, himself or herself as being inherently without value, from this perspective, all of the good looks in the world cannot change the reality, you know, the false reality, the, that is the reality that they, as they perceive it, underneath. A physically beautiful person with borderline personality disorder is not in any improved situation whatsoever 
from the person with borderline personality disorder who is not so physically attractive. Why not? Because both of them are walking around subconsciously or unconsciously believing that they are without worth. So compliments and attention, you know, certainly fall into an external source of a sense of worth. But those forms of a sense of worth are extremely fleeting and artificial. So again, walking into a party or a mall or a restaurant, your true concern, the source of stress of being looked at, is not stress born from believing that you might have a a hair out of place or a stain on your dress. It's stress born from being certain, either consciously, subconsciously, or unconsciously, that you have no inherent worth, and that no matter how great you look, somebody's going to see through this disguise and see the truth that you have no worth. It's really such a shame because, you know, you see these people who are just, man, it's like God himself reached out of heaven and sculpted them. They look like gods. I mean, they just look gorgeous. And they can't even really enjoy it because they're, they're walking around thinking this is just a disguise. This beauty is just a disguise. If anybody looks hard enough, they'll see that despite this beauty, I'm just worthless. Makes me think of the movie of Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise and Penelope Cruz. There's a scene, you know, Tom Cruise is, uh, he's been in this accident and he's just mangled his face. So he was this beautiful person before living high on the hog, high in society and everything. Everybody loving him. He was like the star of every party he went to. Then he just gets his face mangled in this car accident. And it really destroys his, it really destroys him uh, emotionally. It's just, a, just walking out in public is just this great humiliation. So he gets this plastic surgery, uh, like state-of-the-art plastic surgery, and gets his face back to exactly the way it was before. And he goes out with Penelope Cruz and uh, a friend of his, and they're sitting in this bar talking, and his friend says, Oh, my God, what's happening to your face? There on the side, it's, it's like coming apart. And Tom Cruise starts to freak out. And it turns out that the friend is just teasing him. But the panic on Tom Cruise's face... In that scene, that's what it makes me think of. You're, you're sitting there, you're thinking that, uh, you know, beneath beneath this exterior, if anybody discovers me beneath this exterior, they're going to see I'm utterly worthless. Good looks cannot compensate for that underlying, distorted, terribly unhealthy foundation belief. The thing about a person who depends entirely on external forms of validation, you know, like looks or anything else, is that the instant people stop complimenting you or looking looking at you, you fall right back into the pit of feeling disgusting and horrible about yourself. But what about the emotionally healthy person? He or she does not measure his or her inherent worth on external things like this. 
Therefore, the emotionally healthy person, as I mentioned before, feels total security about himself or herself all the time, consistently, no matter what external factors and feedback are in play. So they don't walk into a party all self-conscious. Oh, my God, what is everybody thinking? Because you know what? They, they really don't care. You know, I really don't care when I walk into a party or a social situation anymore. I used to. I don't anymore. And um, let me fine-tune that statement a little bit. You do care. I mean, I, I do care, but not in the way that I used to. What I mean is that if people admire me, that feels good, but I don't need it. I don't need it to feel content and secure with myself. So when I walk into a party, I'm not even thinking about that anymore. I'm not thinking about who's looking at me or who's not looking at me or, or anything like that. It really, it's one of the last things on my mind. And I could not have said that, absolutely could not have said that. Uh, 10 years ago, if I walked into a social situation, it was the only thing on my mind back then. So that's another thing you can look forward to as uh, you know, you advance in your authentic recovery. But anyway, to answer the question, the answer to the question about uh, people looking at you and the stress from that is that you believe people are looking because you're worried about them finding defects in you and realizing what you've already known your entire life that you are actually defective despite despite your looks devoid of worth that that others will eventually realize that any beauty you have is merely a disguise makeup and fancy clothes on a dog turd this is where the social stress and anxiety is coming from the second subconscious distorted core belief i myself Lack inherent worth. So I hope that that provides plenty of insights to ruminate over during this coming week. Before the week gets here, of course, we've got the weekend. So I want to uh, encourage you all to do something nice for yourself. And remember why we do that. It's because the disorder makes you not like yourself. Now, you, there may be things about yourself you do like, but fundamentally, you don't like yourself. You know, a person who views themselves, himself or herself, as devoid of value is not walking around naturally liking himself or herself. So we're trying to get you from not liking yourself to truly liking yourself in a, in a genuine way. And so I'm get, trying to get you into the habit of treating yourself just like you'd treat anybody that you uh, genuinely like. You know, you're, you're patient with, the, with anybody you genuinely like. You're compassionate with them. You're willing to, to stop and put their failures into context and not pile criticism on top of them because you want to see them do well. And you know that they're trying hard, so you want to encourage that, right? So this weekend... Just like you do for anybody that you genuinely like, just do something nice for yourself. It doesn't even have to cost money. And I promise that uh, I'm going to try to do the same as I continue to whack away here at getting uh, the Last Symptom Fundamentals course, the pre recorded version, prepared and ready 
for uh, for y'all's enrollment. I think it's going to be tremendously beneficial to everybody. So I'm excited about it, but I don't want to rush it at the same time. You know, I want to, I want to make sure that it's uh, I address all the things I want to address, and I do it in a thorough way that uh, so that when you take the course, you say, "Man, this was worth every penny and a thousand dollars more." Ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate you being here this week. This is Brian Barnett signing off. As always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.